0: They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up? Talk music. What's up, y'all? Grammy edition. Grammy edition. Grammy edition. Grammy edition! What's up, y'all? It's here. It's fucking, like, 6 a.m. and shit, but, you know, I was just like, I was watching the Grammys, you know, like, I'm sure a lot of you all were watching it, hate watching it, or whatever way you were watching it, and I was just like, you know, I was taking notes for this week's podcast, but I was just like, don't nobody want to hear me talk about this week's Grammys? I mean at the end of the week, you know, might as well just go ahead and do it. Do it for the people. So that's why I'm here. Like I said, it's 6 a.m., but I'm ready. I got me a Red Bull, got me, a um, you know, my good Gold Peak diet tea to chase that. So I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm good. So what y'all think of the show? Um, You know, I'm just going to jump right in. I don't need to introduce myself. You know me. You know I've been around. You know I do the music thing. You know you can go on rmbing.com and read all my old shit so you know let's just jump right into the shit and you know I'm a positive person so I'm not really going to focus on the stuff um that I didn't like I'm just going to focus on the stuff that I liked you know and I did think this show was shockingly more entertaining than I expected if you heard um you know the um last podcast where I kind of made predictions about how awful it was going to be I actually thought it was maybe because my expectations were so damn low it was actually all right but anyway, like I said, I'm not gonna focus on the negative like I'm not gonna talk about how, like at the beginning of the show, Lady Gaga suddenly turned tr- tr- tried to be um Tamar Braxton, you know, and suddenly had a brand new accent, and like somebody said on twitter with her hands, she was like doing sign language or something I'm not gonna talk about that I'm not gonna talk about that. I'm gonna move on, I'm gonna move on, and um, you know, I'm not even gonna talk about that long ass tribute to Neil Portnow. The um, outgoing Grammy, I mean, outgoing um, president of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. Not going to talk about that. You know, not going to talk about how if you're a white person, you know you done fucked up if you need to suddenly turn out an army of black folk to vouch for you. I mean, that tribute had Jimmy Jam, had John Legend, Chloe and Hallie. Yolanda Adams, B.B. Winans, Mother Shirley Caesar, and Andre Day, who somebody on Twitter, you know, because I was reading Twitter the whole time, somebody said she looked like a real housewife of civil rights. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus on the fact that, you know, it was long-ass tribute to this man, but he's the one just last year said these words when somebody was um, talking about how there weren't enough women nominated in the top categories. And I quote, it has to begin with women who have the creativity in their hearts and souls. What the fuck done happened? I'm sorry, y'all. It's 6 a.m. we having technical difficulties and shit. But anyway, I'll continue with this quote. It has to begin with women who have the creativity in their hearts and souls, who want to be musicians, who want to be engineers, producers, and want to be a part of the industry on the executive level. They need to step up because I think that they would be welcome. I don't have personal experience of these kind of brick walls that you face. Of course, as you're a white man, but anyway. But I think it's upon us as an industry to make them well to make the welcome mat very obvious, breeding opportunities—bad word—for all people who want to be creative and paying it forward and creating that next generation of artists. I mean, the gall—it has to begin with women who have the creativity in their hearts and souls and is there's a shortage of women in the music industry who have creativity in their hearts and souls. I mean, but then, you know, he got a a lot of what's focus was on the fact that he said that they need to step up. So then in his apology, he, and you know, not just in the initial apology, but what he was talking about for um, a long time afterwards was that he regretted those two words as if the step up part was the whole shit. You know what I'm saying? And that wasn't just the only kind of wrong-ass thing that he did diversity-wise. When somebody said, like, why is there more, why aren't there more, like, black artists in the top categories and just all that stuff. This is what he said in 2017. um, And I quote, We don't, as musicians, in my humble opinion, listen to music based on gender or race or ethnicity. When you go to vote on a piece of music or at least the way that I approach it, is you almost put a blindfold on and you listen. Now, first of all, in this quote that I have problems with, he says, we don't as musicians. And I'm like, first of all, is you a musician? Because, like, I went to the Wikipedia page, and Wikipedia, (laughs) this is what Wikipedia had to say about your musicianship, sis. It said, he played the bass guitar in a high school rock band, The Savages who released, get this, 145. And it said, the record did not achieve commercial success, but was included in a compilation of garage bands. So this man was in a band in high school, and he's coming up 2017 trying to justify things like why Beyoncé's never gotten an album of the year and stuff like that by evoking that he's a musician, by looking back to his high school days. And then you say, okay, well, you know, give the man a benefit of the doubt. He's the president of, you know, the Academy and whatnot. So, obviously, he must have some behind the scenes of the industry experience. So, you know, I'm looking on the Wikipedia page and say, obviously, this man must have some more qualifications to be running this whole shit. I mean, the whole thing that kind of is the stamp of what, like, industry approval for so many artists, you know, the Grammys for better or for worse. That is what it kind of represents, you know, just like when people always say Oscar nominated or Oscar winner, you know, being Grammy nominated or Grammy award something means something, even though we all know it don't mean shit. But anyway, um, so I'm looking on the Wikipedia page, I'm saying, surely this man got some, like, industry accomplishment shits that just, like, blow me away. And it says... Okay, so he used he was working at RCA and then said he moved to Jive Records where he played and I quote a small role in the careers of Britney Spears in Sync and well, the person who shall not be named but will be muted, but y'all know who I'm talking about. But like, how are you gonna get a job? You played a small role. So I'm like, this man ain't shit as a musician nor is he shit as an industry exec. So he scored the gig in um in 2002 and he's been there ever since. Like this is the man that decided that Janet couldn't take place in the um couldn't take part in the Luther Vandross tribute after the gram after the Super Bowl thing. Okay. This is the man who decides which R&B and hip hop acts or categories get airtime on the show cuz you know we always wonder like I know this person was nominated and I know I've been sitting here for three hours, but I haven't seen, you know, best R&B, best R&B song, best whatever. And he's one helping decide that. And he's also the person deciding, um, who over, the person overseeing the gender parody in the major awards. So I'm like, I did not have any time for this motherfucking tribute. I was like, here's your tribute, bitch, bye. You know, because in my opinion, what have you done for us lately or even in the past or just whatever just go so but i'm not gonna talk about that because that would just be negative and like i said i'm trying to keep it on a positive note it's 6 a.m we starting the day starting the day on a good you know vibe so i don't want to be negative so i'm not even going to touch on jennifer lopez's motown tribute which was just i mean wrong in so many ways i mean Trying to be positive, y'all. Trying to be positive. But just starting... And, you know, you could blame Neil Portnows ass for that, too. I mean, because he had a hand in approving that bullshit. But anyway, I mean, just starting conceptually. There is so much wrong with it just in terms of what Motown represents and just Barry Gordy's whole dream for Motown. I mean, this is... um. I had just read this book by Jack Hamilton. It's a really good book. It's called Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. And he had this to say. He said, when Barry Gordy opened Motown in 1958, 10 years before I was born, y'all, he did so with the conviction that with the proper mix of craft and marketing, black music and musicians could be successfully packaged to white America, and his vision succeeded, as we all know, beyond anyone's wildest dreams. How, what, what does it have to do with J Lo? What? Please tell me. Like the concept, the whole concept was that it was grounded in black music and black musicianship and so but people get it twisted and think that because Motown had such you know crossover success that it's somehow everybody's beauty everybody's music nah it's our music that we sold to y'all and we glad you liked it you know thank you come again but like it is our music and I mean, it kind of comes to brings to mind something Al Sharpton said at Aretha Franklin's funeral. You know, he was, um, talking about how Trump said, you know, Trump tweeted something like, Oh, I'm s- sad to see Aretha Franklin, whatever, what have you, because she worked for me several times. And Al Sharpton was like, she ain't worked for you. She performed for you. And I mean, that's the way I feel about the Motown situation in a way. It's like, the motown's acts crossed over because they were performing for crossover audiences. But that doesn't mean crossover audiences owned them and owned a right to co-opt the music. And in this case, to co-opt the whole damn history. You know, so, the sidebar, because I have to keep it real. And it's funny how, like, black folk, you know, like, we sometimes diss Motown. Among ourselves is being kind of like watered down and whatever and whatever, but let somebody try to claim it or let somebody attack it, and you know that's when the militant jumps out real quick. It's like we can talk about our shit, but you can't take our shit and um, I know I'm just bringing up all these books, but it's just like I've been um deep reading lately. On music stuff, partly because of, um, connections I'm trying to make for the Janet Jackson book that I'm writing. But, um, I thought Margot Jefferson, the critic, um, really put it well. And she was like, we get embarrassed by Motown's easy access charm and its lack of southern based soul. The integration strategy looks like a shameless bid for bourgeois rep, but for bourgeois respectability. The acting seek the act. Child. Like I can say the six it's now six oh five, y'all. Okay, but that active seeking of a white audience always arouses shame as if it must always signal integration and self-hatred. Um ingratiation, not integration, ingratiation and self-hatred. Damn, I don't even have my reading glasses on. Hold on, no wonder I? I can't make sure I'm done. Yeah. Anyway, um Okay, put my reading glasses on. It's probably making noise in the headphones, but I apologize. Anyway, I'm going to read this shit again. Okay, Margot Jefferson. We get embarrassed by Motown's easy access charm and its lack of Southern-based soul. The integration strategy looks like a shameless bid for bourgeois respectability. That active seeking of a white audience always arouses shame, as if it must always signal ingratiation and self-hatred. But then we listen to his best songs, or just a lot of his good ones, and give in again. We yield to its shrewd, ebul- ebulent pleasures, and rightly so. So, you know, I think that's very true about the Motown situation. And like I said, um, that's why I'm so heated about this J-Lo mess. And like I said, I'm not trying to focus on it, y'all. I'm not trying to... um. Focus, But there were two moments in the tribute that just particularly got under my skin. First of all, it's like, what in the Simone Biles was happening with all the... <laughs> what happening was when she was singing Stevie Wonder's Another Star. Like, how has... I mean, somehow Stevie Wonder has managed to perform Another Star for his whole ass career... Without even doing one, you know, little, you know, those little rolls you had to do in elementary school where you just tucked your head. <laughs> I mean, he's been performing the song. But suddenly, you know, she feels like she has to do consecutive backflips to get through the number. And I'm like, what does gymnastics have to do with a Motown tribute? You trying to be Diana Ross or Dominique Dawes? What's good? Let me know. So that was just real confusing to me with all the, you know flipping and turning and whatever but then okay this this one hurts to the heart y'all i took particular offense when she um tried to throw the good tina Marie in all that fucking mess i mean i was like two chains i'm gonna start a ride i'm gonna start a ride like and that hurt me so hard because here's the thing it's like tina marie her name is so rarely brought up in a mainstream context, you know, and she's never given her due in the mainstream. I mean, I think Sherry Shepard had her on when on Sherry Shepard's birthday once on The View, but other than that, you just don't did not see Tina Marie like in those mainstream contexts. I mean, she would go on um, Video Soul and kill it a cappella if I were a bell. but like. So I'm just particularly protective of when she does come up in a mainstream context like the Grammys. I mean she only got one Grammy nomination in her whole career, never an award that when it's done the wrong way, it just bugs the fuck out of me because I'm like somebody's sitting here and their first exposure to Tina Marie is this soulless, flat ass version of Square biz, and I feel away, you know because. The thing about Tina Marie that just makes her so different and unique um, is that she didn't do Black music for a come-up. You know, like my girl Miley. Y'all know I like Miley Cyrus. as a problematic fave, whatever, forgive me. Or like a Justin Timberlake or something like that. Tina Marie never used Black music as a come-up. For her, Black music was a commitment. And she sacrificed for that shit. Like, she could have gone more mainstream and stuff, but she did what she had to do because she was true to the music. And she was true to the music because the music was true to who she was, was true to her whole identity and how she saw herself and how she saw her community and how she saw how she was connected to the world. And so, like, I just feel like, you know, that has to be represented in a certain kind of way. I mean, because she was like... Like, like all black artists in that crossed over in the eighties. It's like, other than like the Michael Jackson's web, you know, she got her one good crossover eighties hit, you know, Lover Girl hit and whatever. That was her version of like Shaka's I Feel For You or Patty's New Attitude or Niecy's Let's Hear It For The Boy. You know, she got that one good hit. And then the thing that I respect so much about that is that, you know, after the success of Lover Girl, she didn't go making her music more pop. Or anything, you know, she took that brief mainstream, you know, shine that she got to then make one of the most experimental albums of her career. And one of my faves, you know, the highly conceptual Emerald City. And it turned out that that was the worst seller of her entire career. But, you know, like me, Lenny Kravitz has good taste. And Lenny Kravitz thinks it's one of her best. No, Lenny Kravitz thinks it is her It is her best. And it had just has so many epic joints. Like, well, don't stop listening to me. But after you listen, you know, go on stream. Like, Love Me Down, Easy, Shangri-La. And then, like, You So Heavy with the Sparkle reference, Sister Can't Fly on Only One Wing. You know, um, and then, like, Lips to find you and like, and real talk. Um, junior year of high school, I got sent to the principal's office because I took out a good old number two in English class and wrote on the desk. Um, my desk, the opening, it was one of them desks, you know, the desk you slide into, like it had like a wooden top. Probably not real wood though, probably like that. It was that, you know, I don't know, whatever kind of wood that was, but anyway, you could write on it. And I wrote, you know, the opening. Lip, there's find you so you say you're leaving for the southern tip of Spain, to soak up local color and forget my name, to live inside the major, not the minor chord, and forget how we made love in a 57 Ford. That was worth getting attention for. Poetry. And it was in English class, so it was apt. But anyway, um... I was just like and you know what also is disappointing to me is that and sorry this is probably gonna make noise, but I need to adjust my headphones. They falling off my ears. But you know, when the show started, J Lo actually, even though she was wearing a hat that was damn near touching her upper lip, you know, J Lo actually really inspired me because she started talking about the influence that freestyle music had on her. Or back in the day we actually, we didn't really call it freestyle till later when There was more of a split when hip-hop was kind of doing its own thing. But back in the day, we used to call it Latin hip-hop. And, you know, I thought that was so cool of her because nobody ever mentions freestyle and how influential it was. And, like, for me personally, I mean, before I started really moving toward house music in my club tastes, I mean, I was a freestyle fanatic. Like, I was—I mean, people think I'm Latin—Latino anyway. I'm not. But, you know, I was, like— a fool, like driving up from DC, you know, it was me at the Heartthrob where the old Fun House was, where Jelly Bean um, Benitez used to play, but at the um, Heartthrob it was Little Louis Vega. And, you know, it was me losing my shit. He would play, like, the big dance dub of Dan Hartman's Name of the Game, Google it, um, or the instrumental to Auto Man by Nucleus, you know, and then, and it was just an experience, like, it was very different from the club experiences that I've had since then, because it was just like just energy, just raw and just young and just wild, and like they would play like, um, they would have like red flashing lights turn around like it's like on emergency vehicle or something like that. And I was eighteen or nineteen, you know, full of rage, wanted to fight, and freestyle was like fight music to me. Like I could not get fucking get enough. So like during this musical, during this. Lame Motown tribute. I'm thinking, like, rather than Jack and Motown, she would have been better to use her star power to shed light on the Latin artists behind the whole freestyle movement. Folks that probably never got any nominations for anything. You know, I mean, she could have given it up for Lisa Lisa. You know, The Cover Girls. Because of You was one of my faves. Uh, Sweet Sensation, Sweet Sensation first album. Sweet Sensation was like. They was like the SWV of freestyle. I mean, they were hardcore with it. Like I said, the first album. Then they got popped because I think the the child that could really sing aggressive, like she, I don't know, she left the group, got thrown out, whatever. But anyway, Sweet Sensation, first album. They were like raw with it. Giggles. Who can forget Love Letter. Probably all y'all because you probably never knew it in the first place. But that was the shit. Uh Judy Torres, I love me some Judy Torres, No Reason to Cry, uh Fascination and Um Sapphire. Like literally, she's one of the handful of artists, including Shaka Khan. Like I really can't think of more than those two, <laughs> honestly, that I've ever asked for an autograph. So that's how shook I was. And see the importance of J Lo doing that is she could have really reclaimed the narrative and recentered the pop narrative around them because the truth is that the freestyle artists were very influential to mainstream 80s top 40 but have gotten completely erased from the narrative cuz all the female pop um women of the 80s like has some kind of freestyle influence like you take Madonna you can hear it in like the you can dance remix you can hear the freestyle influence even in a song like white heat you take a Deb- Debbie Gibson, "The Only In My Dreams." That was nothing but freestyle. I mean, I think literally Vega even remixed um, that, and then you know, and even somebody like Janet. I mean, the um, I can't remember which which mix of "When I Think of You," but one of those twelve inches mixes, like it's not nothing but freestyle. It's like R. T. Bell and the Drills meets uh, Latin hip hop. So. It just would have been such an important statement for J-Lo to kind of claim that. But she ain't do it, and whatever, missed the opportunity. And like I said, I don't want to focus on the negative, so I'm moving on. Now, here's just some of the positive things I just thought, some shout-outs, just things that I just thought, you know, was nice to see. Uh, James Blake, one of my faves, you know, harmonizing with Philip Bailey. I mean, that was a fucking moment because... Um, James Blake has, like, one of my favorite albums of the year. It's just such a, like, it's such a, like, statement on just a unique way of putting, like, being in that position where you didn't think that love was possible for yourself. And then you find love and, like it really being a fucking surprise because you really have reconciled yourself to just not finding love. Like not even from a lonely point of view or anything like that, but just like just that's what it is and I have other shit on my mind and that's just what I do. And like he even has one line about like how he thought that the song was gonna be more important than, you know, the woman he fell in love with, but he realized that's not true. So it's just I'm going on, but it's just a wonderful fucking album. So um and of course I can't even ripping the name of it. Let me see. And it's brand fucking new. Um, let me see. James Blake. And I'm going to see him next weekend, y'all. I'm going to the Three Points Festival. I'm going to see him. I'm going to talk about this uh probably not next week because I'll be it. But I'm going to Three Points, of, like a festival in Miami because don't nobody come to Miami because it's too far down. So we have like Three Points Festival where we get to see cool people. So I'm going. I'm seeing James Blake. I'm seeing... Erica Badu, I'm seeing SZA, I'm seeing uh, Raekwon and Ghostface, um, I think like ASAP Rocky, such so, some other people too. So I'm very excited about that. But anyway, one of the people I'm most excited about is James Blake. Okay, the album is called Assume Form, so you definitely should check that out. But just him with the God Philip Bailey, like that was just amazing to me. And I'm just thinking, like, I just want, I want more. Like, I want them harmonizing together on. Reasons like the live re- reasons versions with the old heads know what I'm talking about. That boo doo doo boo boo doo. <laughs> yeah. I know some of y'all gonna think I'm crazy, but some of y'all know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. Boo-doo boo boo doo. I wanna I wanna hear them do that, so um somebody make that happen. Maybe the BT, but I'd be hot doing the BT awards, you know. But anyway, um shout out Janelle manet for looking like a black Judy Jetson with the safe word. Shout out to that. That was a moment. Um, shout out to Valerie Simpson sitting in the audience with her white on. Uh, just looking just good and, like, accomplished and established and just her. You know what I mean? And just both for getting the trustees award with her um, late husband, Nick. And honestly, just for simply being Valerie Simpson, like, I think one of... Ashford and Simpson were so great, but like one unfortunate consequence of that was that it took, a, it didn't allow Valerie Simpson to establish her solo career. And she was really a phenomenal, she is, was, whatever, a phenomenal force just of herself. Like one time I saw her perform, just sit, sit, sitting there with a the piano at um one of Cheryl Lee Ralph's diva simply singing events um, that she does like as an A- for AIDS charities and I mean it was just incredible she just sat at the piano and did all the stuff that she had written but in her own voice and just kind of seeing how she, how she initially had interpreted the songs like she just sat there she did I'm Every Woman she did um, The Boss I mean it's just thing after thing after thing and it was just amazing and please like her album, Exposed, that's one of my favorite albums of all time. So again, don't turn me off yet. But after you listen to me, then you listen to James Blake. Well, maybe, But even before you listen to James Blake. Well, I don't know, maybe if you don't even listen to James Blake. But anyway, you should check out um, Exposed because it's on all your streaming sites. And it's just really um, just an incredible um, sort of kind of just like a, a 70s soul record that's really stripped down and kind of um bare. So it's, it's fantastic. Um, Shout out to Diana Ross for just being Diana Ross and for saying happy birthday to me on her 75th. You know, and everybody, like everybody, you know, thought that was a fierce diva moment and everything like that. Self-love and it was, but I mean, we also can't, take away from, like, the seriousness that's behind that in a way, because, you know, Diana's only two years younger than Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin ain't here no more. You know, so it's like, it really means something. It's not just a kind of diva, me, me, me moment for her to say something like, happy birthday to me. It's really like, happy damn birthday to me, because I'm still here, and a lot of people that I came up with ain't. So, I just I really kind of felt that moment, especially in the context of um, the Aretha Franklin tribute, you know, that came later. Um, And then shout out to this her perform, The Best Years of My Life, um, which you may know as the first single from her box set. Remember the box set? From her box sets, Forever Diana, musical memoirs. Uh, But anyway, that song, which was produced by the legend Nick Martinelli. Like, it did nothing on the charts. Nothing. But Miss Diana Ross will tell you what is and was not a hit. (laughs) Like, because she's been performing that shit like it was a smash since 1993. And this really on a side note, but whatever, that's me. Um, It also has a beautiful video done by Ellen Van Unworth. So you should check out that video because, especially for the Jam fam, on here because it's very similar in look and feel to the shoot that um, Ellen Van Unwerth did with Janet, you know, which some one of the pictures ended up on the If cover, um, the, single, the If single cover. So that was um, really great. And then related to Diana, shout out to Rhonda Ross on her iPhone because that picture of Rhonda on her iPhone I think that's destined for meme history. Cause I mean, just from the moment I saw it, a lot of people immediately associated with JLo. Cause it's like the moment I saw it, I thought of 50 bazillion uses that I can have that in the future. I immediately saved that to my meme file on my um, Mac, you know, just for later use. Shout out to Barty for giving us cotton club realness during the money performance. Although, I thought the whole issue with Ariana was that they didn't want nobody singing new songs that aren't nominated. So I was confused. But anyway, it was a great performance. And um, also for her being the first woman to win Best Rap Album, shout out to her. And lastly, shout out to Ariana Grande, who got all the revenge during the commercial breaks. It's like Neil oh, and whoever else you know, um, said that she couldn't perform her new shit. On the show, so what does she did? Do? She got an Apple commercial that played almost the whole goddamn Seven Rings, including the the rap part. So it's like, what she need for the show? She got that. And then I thought that that was badass enough, you know. Later, she did the same thing with T Mobile that played almost all the Thank You Next. So you know, take that Grammys. Now moving on to um. My top five minutes. Hold on. I need to take me a sip of my Gold Peak Diet Tea. Y'all know I'm trying to get that sponsorship, right? All right. Um, And I'm doing it in reverse order. So my top five Grammy moments. Okay, number five. Um, You know, I always have to give it up for Dolly Parton. I cannot remember a time that I haven't been obsessed with her it's kind of like Cher to me or Diana Ross you know just people I'm sorry about that I know that made a noise but just people that like for as long as I've known me and had a sense of me and had a sense of I guess an aesthetic you know when you start to develop a consciousness of the things that you like that then come to define you. I mean, she was always in the mix. And one of my career highlights um, was actually interviewing her at Dollywood. I mean, it was not even, like, a lot of people think of her as camp and funny. Like, it was not at that at all. I almost thought it was. Like, I thought I was going to get, like, you know, I don't know, a big boobs mug or something like that. Or, like, you know, there'd be some rides where you were, like, some roller coaster where you were going up and down titties or something like that. I didn't know what to expect, honestly. But, I mean, it was a really deep experience. Like, it was really rooted in the community. I mean, she had, like, local crafts people. There wasn't a whole lot of, like, there wasn't any, you know, anything there that was not rooted in the local crafts people, you know, the just um, every all the rods were kind of, like, wooden and everything. It was very integrated within the kind of um, mountainous environment. Like it was really, it was deep. You know, it, was, it wasn't it was anything kind of superficial or flashy about it. Like it was really, and like going through her, she has a little museum and going through it um, and seeing like the momentum from her career, you really got a sense of the depth of what this woman has done and like how, significant her journey was and I remember looking at the coat of many colors you know thinking it was gonna look like some threadbare thing that looked like a fly piece you know from the 90s that Todd Oldman made or something that Tyra Banks was walking down the Broadway. that thing looked fly as hell so anyway it was just a great experience and I love the tribute um especially my problematic fave Miley you know Katy Perry not so much I mean, i didn't Katy Perry just recently say that she was going away for a while, that she was taking a break? Uh, too soon, sis. Too soon. <laughs> let us miss you if that's ever going to happen, but let us even have the chance to, like, want to hear uh, fireworks or something like that, but like, it doesn't feel like you went away. Uh, and I think I just saw my timeline, like I heard on a paper magazine cover, and that. Anyway, but um, the one thing that bothered me about the um Dolly Parton tribute, especially me being a black Dolly Parton fan, is that there were no black artists included in um the tribute and you know one thing I think that's interesting about Dolly too, is that her career trajectory was similar to a lot of black artists that achieved crossover success, you know. Pre the 90s, when everything was changed in the 90s in terms of what was and what wasn't considered pop. But pre the 90s, you know, you as a black artist, as an R&B artist, you really took, could take a hit for um, going mainstream. Like we saw when like when Whitney was booed at the Soul Train Music Awards, I mean, some said that she was never... That she never recovered from that. That that was something she took with her to the grave. And, like, you even think of somebody like maybe, like, the late James Ingram, you know, rest in peace. He, you know, I mean, he was really kind of seen in that pop lane, you know. He tried to come back to R&B charts with, like, what was it? It's real, I'm real. think it was produced by Teddy Riley or something like that. But it's, like, he never kind of fully came back to be considered an R&B artist once he had all those, you know, I Don't Have Heart and all those big crossover ballads. So I'm just saying that there was a price to pay. And so the interesting thing to me was that the Dolly tribute opened with Here You Come Again. And, like, that song was, like, the turning point for her in her slowly – Losing her support at country radio. Because even though that was a huge smash. Of country and pop. And it was like her biggest seller. It like. Led to the perception. That she was no longer country. Or didn't want to be country. Um, anymore. And that shit lasted a long time. Like when I was doing. Um, my Dolly Parton story. And we're talking like. What? oh two, oh three, or something like that. I, you know, talked to the local I was in Atlanta and I talked to the local um country radio programmer and just, you know, the obligatory, oh well, what do you think of the new Dolly Parton single? Are y'all playing it? This and that, blah blah blah. And he was like, Well, Dolly conveniently forgets that she turned her back on the country industry to go Hollywood. And I'm just like like you I like Hating on the woman for being a success. I mean, for like, because the go Hollywood. I don't think was just a reference to you know the movies like nine to five. And you know, I even fuck with straight talk, but um, you know, it's like that sense that she went country. and I always love um something that she her kind of comeback to that. She wrote it in um her autobiography. She she said um. I would hear some of the old timers in Nashville complain that I was leaving country music. I would always reply. I'm not leaving it. I'm taking it with me to new places. So that's how gangster she was with that. So again, you know, you could really sub that story in for, I mean, that's probably what Whitney would have said, right? You know, you can really sub that story in for a lot of black artists. And then the other thing is that she actually has a connection with a lot of black artists? I mean, Millie Jackson and Patti LaBelle both covered "Here You Come Again," and just on the soundtrack for um for Dumpling, you know, which regrettably I haven't seen. I feel bad I haven't seen it because come Christmas time I had to decide when I was gonna watch Dumpling or Bird Box, and everybody on social media was talking about Bird Box, so I watched Bird Box, which I like. But I'm just saying I ne- just never swung back to Dumpling. But nevertheless, um, you know, on the Dumpling soundtrack, she has features from Macy Gray and Maeve Staple. So either one of them could have been on there. And then I was thinking to myself, like, was Priscilla Renee booked? Because we really need to start supporting Priscilla Renee's solo country shit after all the pop and R&B bops that she's co-written for us. I think We need to return the favor because she's given us... MJB's, um, Mary J. Blige's Don't Mind. She's giving us Fifth Harmony's Worth It. Kelly Clarkson's Love So Soft, which I have to stop myself from breaking into right now. And most recently, um, Mariah's a no-no. So go on, go ahead and stream a sister. You know, show her some support. And that includes myself because I ain't never played any for solo stuff, but you know, I know it's out there and I know I should and I will. Um, And then, like, I liked Little Big Town doing Red Shoes on the song Red Shoes, but then I was like, imagine if, instead of Little Big Town, it was like the Clark Sisters. Like, that would have been epic. And for one thing, you know, Dolly started to get into her little happy dance on uh, at the end of the song, but then she stopped. It wouldn't have stopped if the Clark Sisters had been there. They would have carried on. Like It would have been church up in there. So, again... Nice tribute, but missed opportunities. So moving on. My number four favorite moment was Shawn Mendes and, again, my problematic fave, Miley Cyrus, doing it in my blood. I mean, first of all, I bid Mendes Army, hashtag Mendez Army, from way back, back to the Cameron Dallas is my boyfriend days. Google it. And um, and no, I don't think he's gay or that if he were gay that he would necessarily be a bottom I just like his voice, his commitment to his craft, his overall energy, his cute-as-fuckness. And don't fight it. I mean, I've converted a number of people to the Shawn Mendes fandom by now. I'm like a Scientologist with shit. You know, just watch his episode of Carpool Karaoke. Get into it. You can't resist. But anyway, the performance started out sexy as fuck with him. You know, I thought the sexiness had just was you know peaking when um interesting choice of words but anyway was just peaking (laughs) during the mtv performance with the rain showering down him and he's in the white t-shirt and water and singing and but anyway but then you know he started this performance that sleeveless thing, his arms flexing, you know, the little muscles just poking out while he's playing the piano, and And then, but then he got up, and one hand, with one hand slung that guitar around his neck, I swear, I had 11 children, like, I was done, I was like, boom, 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 that was just like, some sexy ass shit. But then Miley came in, and the harmonics of it all, and just mm, 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 mm. I was I was just done. Like they, the two have so much chemistry, it's ridiculous. And if you haven't seen it, you should Google. Um, they did Islands in the Stream together a couple of nights before that, or maybe just the night before at the Dolly tribute at the Music Hairs benefit, and you know they got so much chemistry. But they almost have so much chemistry that it got me a little worried. Cause you know, Miley is a married woman now, and you know, it's like when they were doing um when they were doing Islands of the Stream. Like she leaned in a little too good when they had that line making love to one another. I'm like, you know, it's that leaning. Like we sing in a duet together. So yeah, you know, pretend we're whatever, whatever. And then there's that lean where it's like. Mm-hmm. She really thinking about making love to this motherfucker. So, like, um, and the thing is, Molly ain't been married but a couple of months. She got married in December. And she's already out there, like, on extra. She was admitting that she was the one that reached out to Sean about collaborating. And she did it by sliding in his DMs. I mean, if I was her husband, I'd be like, you know, that's what managers are for. Like, that's... You have your guy call his guy or woman, whatever, and get it done. You don't be sliding in homeboys' DMs talking about, let's make music together. But that's just me. Oh, and then they also wore matching leather jackets to the Music Cares event. And now, this is what she said to Extra. Like, this was Extra TV. Not, I mean, she was being Extra on Extra, in my opinion. But she said, I know I'm married, but I get crazy when I see a photo of Sean. Sean? And then she went on. He's not a hall pass. I just get to look. I don't need to touch. I just look. Girl. If you are thinking that deep about looking. Then you only but a half step away from one to touch. And like I'm just like. She's my girl and all. But. I don't want her to fuck up my good Sean's clean cut image, you know, because I'm just saying it only going to take one late night studio session and one thing than another and boom, 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 you know, and then the thing also is, um, you know, Sean has got to be vulnerable after last year because... Homeboy took um, Haley Baldwin to the Met Gala in May. And that was kind of, you know, one of his first times stepping out with somebody like, you know, like kind of like relationship in somebody. And then child, Haley was married to Justin Bieber by September. (laughs) So it's like, that is God, that's insert the Friday's damn gift. You know, there's no way to kind of not, take that a certain kind of way. So I'm just saying he's vulnerable and they late night and they singing and it's together and it's harmonies. Um, boom, boom, boom. Somebody better get him one of the male chastity belts and just lock up that Canadian dick because <laughs> it's just going to be a problem if uh, <laughs> if uh, that were to happen. So I just don't want to see that happen. So like like I said, get that chastity belt, lock up that dick. Um, moving on to number three, but keeping with the theme of fine ass motherfuckers. Why did nobody tell me about the black country singer Kane Brown? Cause like, I like country and I like fine ass men and like, you put the shit together, like, let me know. Because I was watching E, because I know he's been around. I know I'm late as fuck, but, like, I ain't know. I just ain't know. Because I was watching E's Red Carpet, and, you know, I was taking notes for this podcast, right? He came on the screen. I dropped my motherfucking pen. I was just like, who is that? Then, of course, I spent the next 60 minutes, you know, pre-Grammys, watching his YouTube videos, Googling, you know, Kane Brown shirtless uh, shopping for merch and um, reading all these articles about him. And he really has an interesting story. I mean, because he's, you know, mixed race. And, like, he was telling stories about, like, literally running from his, running for his life from people chasing him, you know, saying, Nuh, with the hard R, you know what I mean? And, like, um, and then he said, And this was just so deep, like, in terms of, like, black folk can fuck with country music, but does country music fuck with us? Because he said that when he first got to Nashville, people straight up did not want to write with him because he was black. And, you know, that's just kind of crazy. So, again, I'm kind of hooked on him. I'm obsessed. So... Whatever, expect to hear about him more in future um, podcasts because he's got that like deep Josh Turner, Scotty McCreary voice, and like he talks that country slang that East Coast boys we like. So, you know, that's my man now. Uh, Number two, gotta give it up from a man, Aubrey showing up with a surprise award acceptance appearance, shout out, you know. And then he really came through with the speech, although it got cut off. You know, I really thought he delivered. Sorry, y'all, my note cards are stuck together, so. Anyway, but he said, this is what I liked in the um, speech, he said, sometimes it's up to a bunch of people who may not understand what a mixed- in terms of getting awards sometimes who decides who gets the awards or even the nominations honestly um may not understand what a mixed race kid from canada has to say or a fly spanish girl from new york or anybody else and then he goes on he says the point is you've already won if you have people who are singing your songs word for word if you're a hero in your hometown if there are people who have regular jobs who are Out in the rain, in the snow, spending their hard-earned money to buy tickets to your shows, you've already won. And I mean, I think that's an important principle just in general to, as an artist and something just to kind of keep in mind about the importance of people that support you um, and kind of, you know, really respecting that and feeling that the same way that you feel. When your industry peers give you accolades, you know, and of course everybody wants accolades from their peers and stuff, but I think it's particularly important for, um, black creatives or, um, I'm not going to the shit. I'm, I'm black. I'm just talking about black people. So I'm just saying black creatives, um, because it reminds me of something that Ava DuVernay said on Justin Simeon, you know, Justin Simeon from, um, the creator of um, Dear White People, he has this podcast called "Don't At Me." It's a really good podcast. Again, after you listen to James Blake, you play Valerie Simpson's "Exposed," you give Priscilla Renee a couple of good spins, um, get her numbers up. <laughs> you know, listen to Justin's podcast, um, "Don't At Me," because one thing Ava she's talking about Emmy nominations because Dear White People, you know, which is on Netflix didn't get any Emmy nominations, and Justin Simeon had really, really tried. Like, that was his goal with the second season, which was fantastic, by the way, if you haven't watched it, that really, some of them episodes. But anyway, um, so they were talking about him not giving nominations, and Ava was saying, like, it's important. You have to feel the same way about the people that come up to you and show you love about your work. You have to feel the same way about that as you do about getting these awards and getting these awards um, nominations. You know, that is really, that's very, I can honestly say that that's sort of, you know, way before this, but just from my personal experience, I had something that was really life-changing for me artistically that happened with um, my Luther Vandros biography like that. In that, um, you know, when it was initially released, some people taught, thought it, you know, because everybody's so protective of Luther, whatever. Like, some people thought it was me trying to, like, be tabloidy or, like, trying to out him or just trying to, like, capitalize on him as if I didn't grow up with Luther Vandross, You know, just all this kind of stuff, like, that came at me. like once, And it's just weird shit. Like, one time, um, you know, I guess I had overcorrected the code switch or something. But, you know, because I came up in a certain way, and you're supposed to talk a certain way when you're... On um, pub, you know, public. Obviously, I don't give a fuck about that now. But you know, that's the way I kind of grew up. And so, one time I was doing this radio interview about Luther when the book came out, and this man—this was a, like a—this was an R&B station. This man stopped me mid-sentence and was like, "Excuse me, I just have to ask: Are you black? Because what are you doing writing a Luther Vandross bio, as if like?" The way I talk had something to do with my authenticity for writing about Luther. So I had all sorts of really bizarre shit like that happening um, at the very beginning. So I and then I was covering his funeral for um, Vibe, and like again, just the whole perception of the tabloid thing or whatever. Like I got blacklisted from. They wouldn't. I walked to the front door. And I was on the media list because I knew the person that, you know, just from my old connections, I knew the person that was putting together the media list. So I was on the media list. So I could stroll up and like, Craig Seymour, you know, I'm on the list, the DJ's list. (laughs) Shout out to Little Louis, but no, just saying, I was on the list. And um, then somebody just within earshot of that, somebody that's part of his camp just came over and said, no, he's not allowed in uh, by any circumstances look at me dead ass in the face, you know? So I was just like, whatever. Because it was a public fucking viewing. So what I do? I just walked around the block and got in the line with everybody else and just stood in the line and was in and out in 30 minutes. But one of the things that happened, like, as soon as I turned that corner, you know, as soon as I had this humiliation, because everybody was like, ah, you know, he ain't get in. As soon as I turned the corner, I saw this woman holding my book And, like, clutching it, like, in such a way, it was like that was her connection to Luther or something. And, like, she felt like it was like a physical embrace of the book. And it was just so, it struck me so deep because I was like, you know, that's why I wrote the book. Like, I wrote the book for true Luther fans. Like, I'm a Luther fan. And, like, this woman, none of these other motherfuckers get it. Okay, and people asking, am I black enough to write the fucking book on radio? You know, none of these motherfuckers get it. This woman gets it. This woman's holding my book, cradling my fucking book. And that just changed my whole attitude because you couldn't say shit to me, then fuck you. You know, I know I did it. I know this one woman knows why I did it and gets why I did it. And I know that she does. it's not just her. She represents... Oh, people! I just can't even see. So fuck you. You can't say shit to me about this book because I know that people get it. So, um and then you know, of course, as things do, just with you know, universal laws and whatnot. After that, I began getting all these accolades. People began liking it and everything like that, and it's only continued to this day. But that was the real turning point for me. So I'm going on for too long, but just. All that to say that I was really connected to what um, Drake said at that moment. And, you know, another thing that Ava said that during that thing that was kind of related to the Drake thing that really struck with me, stuck with me, struck me and stuck with me. Um, was she was saying, like, you know, if you're really out there and you're talking and your work is speaking to a very specific community that's outside the mainstream community... You're not gonna get nominations and awards, like, cause they're just not gonna get it. Like, if you're speaking so specific to, to that community, and you're really doing that shit that you know that people get the mainstream that decide on these awards and shit, they're not gonna get it, cause it's not for them. So, don't be upset about something that you put out, that you wrote it. For this community, you ain't write it for the mainstream. So don't get upset if the mainstream don't get it. So, I mean, I just think that's a really important thing to um, keep in mind. And that's something... So I just thought Drake was really, really strong with... You know, he gets a lot of flack and stuff. I've always been a Drake fan, still a Drake fan. But, you know, he gets a lot of flack for just whatever. Just being light-skinned Canadian and whatever. I don't know. But... um, Soft, you know, half singing, half rapping, but whatever, you know, he gets a lot of shit for a lot of shit. But I just thought he really came through in that moment. Um, and now moving on to my number one, number one Grammy moment of the night. We damn near seven o'clock here, but it got to number one. Uh, I have to give it to Chloe and Hallie, like doing the um, great Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack duet. Where's the love? Not only was it one of the best performances that I've ever seen um, in recent years, or ever, or whatever, uh, but it was exactly what you want from a great award show performance. I feel like a great award show performance, like if you're taking it back to like – well, not really taking it back – well, it is taking it back, but like, you know, the Ricky – the Ricky Martin performance, you know, just performances, any number of Beyonce performances, like when she had that dove land in her hand, you know, just it should be something that kind of, if you're not, have not been into that person, is something that really makes you see them and recognize them as an artist in a way that you may have never done before. And if you have been following that person, it actually expands your, um, view of the expands the possibilities of what you think that that person is capable of artistically and to me um chloe and hallie did all that everything was right the outfits the lighting the staging the harmonies the um singing together and even like when um chloe's low notes and hallie's highs and I love the track. It the track really brought to mind like some of the darker moments on Beyonce's self title. Like it had kind of that um just a that, that feel that really kind of it just kinda of gave like a depth to this weird's love. And I, I just thought it was just fantastic. And um you yeah. know, I'ma need this to be a single or at the very least some kind of title exclusive or something. I just thought it was that. And I thought the performance once again proves a lot about Beyonce, like it really shows her focus because, you know, with Parkwood, she has, it's not like she has, you know, 50 bazillion acts out there. It's like she chose them and just really focused on them and polishing them to be competitive with the best of the, in the industry, regardless of what, how, what their sales are. You know what I mean? Like they are beyond sales. But not in a bad way, but like they have are elevated to an artistry that it doesn't matter if they have a top 10 hit or anything like that. It's like people already recognize the talent and the artistry and everything like that. And that's a really good place to be in, especially like right after your first album. That's pretty incredible. And I think that's all due to Beyonce and the way that she has engineered her career to be above the charts, you know. Um, and not thinking about radio programmers. Um, they say speed it up. She just goes slower. You know what I mean? But, um, the other thing just shows me like what a visionary Beyonce is. Cause I have to admit, like, I always appreciated what Chloe and Halle were about, but I wasn't like really trying to listen to their stuff. I mean, I remember that one mixtape they released on SoundCloud and was like 45 continuous minutes or something. I was like. Five minutes in, I was just like, you know what? I'm just got to wait till they put an album or separate these tracks because I just I can't commit to that level. But now with you know, I just love them on Grownish. They're um series regulars now, and they just crack me up. Um, especially Hallie with her, you know. And then this performance. I mean, I'm a total stand now, and I really can fully appreciate what Beyonce must have seen or felt in the first place. So. Again, like I said, stuff like that, these five moments, my shout outs, it made it a much more enjoyable experience than I initially expected, or that I certainly thought after seeing that Camila Cabello mess um, that opened the show. Which, did that—was it me, or did that just not look like they— Basically, just did the same production design from Rihanna and Khaled's performance last year. And just, I mean, it seemed like the same colors, the same kind of costumes, so whack. But um anyway, that's about it. I'm not gonna do a long wrap-up because we down there at seven o'clock now. I thank you all as always for listening. If you like what you hear in all the crazy randomness, please share it. That means a lot. And I'll be back with another episode very, very soon at the end of the week. And as always, be cool, be kind, be creative, be your motherfucking self. Because I love y'all. I'm out, Craig.